Hey everybody, welcome to the 40th episode of Mike Meets the Podcast. What I got for you today is an interview with the directors of Survival of the Film Freaks, an upcoming documentary about cult films and the culture surrounding that. Um, obviously you're, you're going to hear a lot more about that in a second. Um, but I just want to let you know there's some issues with the audio. Um, my internet was cutting out um, during part of this, so there's there's some gaps if things sound weird. But I think you'll still be able to make out what's happening um, if you're in, as intelligent as I expect my listeners to be. So, <laughs> um, yeah, don't worry about that. This is Bill Fulkerson and Kyle Kukta, directors of Survival of the Film Freaks. The blind stares of a million pairs of eyes looking hard but won't realize that they will never see the pee. Hey everybody, we're back. Uh, It's been a while and this time we have two very special guests with us. They have a film that will be premiering in the near future. Bill and Kyle, how's it going? Yeah, I'm doing good, man. Doing good. How are you? I'm doing. I'm doing well. It's uh, it's good to have you guys here uh, talking about your film. This is the first like true interview I've had on this podcast where somebody's like promoting something and like trying to we're trying to get the word out so that everyone knows about its greatness. So this is exciting for me. Oh, honored, man. Thanks for having us. I too am excited. So uh, how did you guys get into to films and filmmaking in general before we, we talk about the movie? Bill, you go. You want me to go? Okay, uh, all right. Uh, I mean, I got into films like I guess everybody else does. I just, I, I watched movies when I was young. Um, I got into weird movies early on because my parents were pretty, pretty open with allowing me to watch horror movies and kind of weird movies uh, when I was younger. So I, I got to explore the kind of more out-of-the-box cinema, I guess, early on, which I think is really where people kind of get more into movies. It's like people that are into movies aren't, like, always raving about whatever is hot at the box office. They're, like, more like, hey, have you checked out this whatever horror movie or, you know, weird-ass thing? So I just, yeah, early on I got into it because I got to be able to watch that stuff. My parents didn't really, like, keep any of it from me. So I was watching, like, Nightmare on Elm Streets and Friday the 13th and all that stuff when I was, like, 10 years old. So... As I get older, just, you know, the interest grew and you know how it is. You kind of follow down different rabbit holes of like, you know, this direct. I just kept digging and kept digging and kept digging. And then for the last, you know, 10 and a half years or so, I've done a podcast that's exclusively to cult films. So I force myself to watch, you know, over 100 random weird movies every year. So it just kind of never ends. So the movie itself, the, the making the documentary, though, came from doing the podcast for so long and having, you know, met Kyle, and Kyle can tell that story in a moment if he wants. Yeah. It was the idea that I'd come across in my head and was like, yeah, I think this would be a pretty good idea to kind of explore films and kind of the technology that goes with it. So, um, yeah, I mean, in a roundabout way, I just have always liked movies, and now I'm trying to share that knowledge with people, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Very very noble goal right there. Yeah, I mean, I, I do not touch Bill as far as how many movies he sets out to watch a year. And uh, for me, I mean, movies just came about. Um, like, I would go with my grandparents to Vermont every summer, and they would there was a little rental store there, and they would get me a lot of Universal Monster movies. Mm-hmm. 
because they weren't super scary and they were fun. So like a lot of Universal monsters, a lot of like Godzilla and stuff like that. And that really sparked my interest in movies and it's particularly how movies were made. Um, because then there was a show on, I want to say like Discovery Channel that was all behind the scenes and special effects. So my love for watching movies and my uh, discovery of how movies are made kind of gelled um, at a young age. Uh, so then that was basically what I ever wanted to do was somehow be involved in filmmaking. I wanted to be a stuntman at one point, And if anybody knows my build, uh, that does not work. Um, <laughs> it was very not a great idea. Um, and then I wanted to be, you know, be in special effects. And then ultimately that all dwindled down to, uh, writing and directing and, um, documentaries just happened to be where, uh, my first sort of ventures into filmmaking were, uh, Mike and I went to uh, Syracuse University where uh, I studied film there, and a lot of the stuff that I did was, was nonfiction. I mean, I did a couple like narratives here and there, but a lot of the stuff was documentary because that was a really great avenue to learn and um, figure out what to do while also being able to teach people something that I thought I had an idea of. You know, like my first documentary was about horror conventions, and now Bill and I are teaming up to do this one about cult cinema. Uh, Bill, particularly with a lot of the uh, knowledge about that, but we're coming together to make a story. Um, we met on that other uh, documentary that I did called Phantasm, which was all about horror movie conventions. Um, and we met at a convention in Rock and Shock and stayed in contact. And now we're uh, now we're here. Wow. So you guys met in the way that like people used to meet before the Internet, like just happened to talk to each other <laughs> and actually exchanged phone numbers and became friends. It feels like sort people, of. people don't mean The like internet that. actually had something to do with it because a, friend, a mutual friend of ours hooked us up and was like, hey, you should have Bill and his co-host from his, his, from his podcast in your movie. And then Kyle was like, all right, cool. And kind of yeah, yeah. And, but then, then I think back, so it was funny. We, we met in person for that documentary, but years prior, I actually still had a, a card from his podcast because I had been going to that convention for – five, six years. So I actually had a uh, outside the cinema like podcast card. So when we met in person, I was like, oh yeah, I know who these guys are uh, because of the convention prior. But we did have, yeah, we did have a hand from a mutual friend. But then, I mean, the rest was the fact that we even stayed in contact. I mean, that, that didn't normally have happened, you know, like uh, especially some uh, college student who wasn't sure what the hell he was doing, uh, <laughs> going in and asking Bill, part of the documentary but we just really hit it off and um you know and then a couple of years later bill with this idea for survival of the film freaks oh yeah you guys shared the division before i before i ask you about the movie itself wait i want to tangent real quick you mentioned the the universal monster mm -hmm. movies which are um, yeah all classics right they, they came out correct me if i'm wrong like the the 20s and 30s or was it 30s and 40s uh no yeah yeah they uh more the 30s and 40s. I mean, I think there was one that was in the 20s. I'm not. And then, see, it's so funny. I don't. I'm not keen on it. I just real like just learned in the past couple of years that Creature from the Black Lagoon was in the 50s. So um, I'm not great with dates, but I think it mostly in the 30s and 40s. Um, Dracula was the first one, wasn't it? Yeah, I believe Dracula was the first one. 31, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Okay. And then Frankenstein. And then Invisible Man. I mean, if, if you include Phantom of the Opera, then we're in the 20s. So some people do and some people don't. Okay. So, But, but what I want to ask about, you said your, your, uh, your parents would let you watch that, watch because they, they said it wasn't scary. But Right. Like, they, 
Yeah. But it's fair to assume that in the, the 20s or 30s, people, were they were they scared of those movies at that time, do you think? Or or not? And, and if so, what when's the moment that it stopped being scary? Mm. Um, I think that the... They were certainly scary at the time. I think, like, you know, if you ever look at a list of movies, Dracula oftentimes is listed. Um, Frankenstein sometimes listed too, but I think Frankenstein has uh, a little more of like a moral compass, uh, just by nature of its of its uh, base material. Uh, but Dracula was considered pretty scary um, for the time. I think Creature from the Black Lagoon was probably considered some of that too. Uh, Wolfman certainly has its moments, um, but I think that the when they turn from scary to comedic or campy or whatever um, would probably be uh, like before we went into World War II. Um, a lot of their well, Abbott and Costello meet the Wolfman stuff. That's yeah, what yeah. Ah, because people, yeah, people. You know, at least in the entertainment field, this was kind of a first. Time, like first realization, first into war time for the U.S. during film popularity. So it was like the studios didn't think that people wanted to watch horror movies um, during wartime. So then you get things like, as opposed to The Invisible Man, which I think he's the one who kill has like the highest body count in those early Universal monster movies. I think The Invisible really? Man has the highest body count. That's but then they would like turn him into Invisible Agent. Um, and this is all, the only reason I know this stuff, because I haven't watched all these movies since I was that young. I've watched a couple here and there. But uh, Nightmares in Red, White, and Blue is a documentary that touches on uh, the horror film in America uh, from these early periods all the way up till, I think, like, mid-2000s. Um, and, yeah, the, the, the consensus is that it turns when we go into wartime. They go from scary to campy or funny or whatever. Mm. Do you think? Do you think that as um, you said, it's partially to do? You said with like there were other comedians at the time kind of mocking it, and maybe that uh, brought away the, the the horror of it. And maybe I don't know. Maybe this might be a stretch, and you know, I feel free to tell me I'm wrong. But like the horrors that World War Two brought that were that were much realer, like maybe nulled, numbed down the the horrors on film. Yeah, I, I mean, I think so, and and Bill knows a little bit more about like the even like the sci-fi stuff, like those B movies from the '50s, because now, I mean, so you have these movies coming out of World War II. I mean, if you look at the horror or sci-fi or even just, I mean, cult films are around, but they were more like noirs or things that aren't genre films now, you know. So like, there's like a weird lull. From like the from out of World War Two into the fifties when we're talking, you know, Cold War and big bug sci-fi movies or whatever. Mm. All right, cool. So to get a little more into your your actual your film here, if if I'm wondering, like, how do you define a cult film to begin with, and then maybe just tell me more about uh, the the documentary itself. Uh, cult, I mean, cult films, there is funny. One thing we learned with talking to the bunch of different people about cult movies is that almost everybody really has a different definition of what cult movies is. One of the questions we asked everybody was, you know, when someone says the term cult film, what do you think of? And, you know, like a bunch of people gave us like a very kind of like standard definition. A bunch of people were like, 
oh, well, I just think of this particular movie or I think of this. Uh, I mean, I guess the, the general like belief of a cult film is, you know, people look at it as a film that missed the mark when it was first released and then, you know, garnered a good following after the fact. I don't, I don't think I buy into that. I think any movie of any genre of any time period can become a cult film as long as there's a dedicated fan base to people that like it. Mm. That could be a dedicated fan base of four people, like, but those four people love that movie, so therefore that's a cult movie. Yeah. You know, there's like always that kind of argument of like, you know, is Star Wars a cult movie? It's like, well, no. If you look at it from the general outlook of you know, popularity. No, obviously not because it made all this money, but people have such a, you know, whether it's Star Wars or Star Trek or Lord of the Rings or any of those major things, there's always this cult of fans. You know, there's all the like fair, not, well, maybe not fair weather fans, but people that like, like it, but they just, you know, like, oh, they, you know, oh, yeah, I watched, I watched Star Wars. It was fine. Then there's the people that watch Star Wars and they watch it again and they buy the toys and they write, you know, they write their own stories and like all that other bullshit that goes along with it. So it's like, I feel like anything can be a cult movie. And that's kind of, we kind of got into that with people where it was like, you know, there's not really like a cut and dry black and white definition of cult films. And that's kind of really, that's really awesome if you think about it because anybody can talk about anything in that light, you know? Yeah. I, um, yeah, because, so then what, a follow up question. What did you think in your head was a cult movie going into making this? Yeah. Like, what were you guys picturing as a cult I mean, movie? I mean, I guess for me, it's it's different for me because I've I've watched so many what you know, quote unquote, cult films, or you know, not like the normal, you know, Friday night at the cinema type thing, the stuff that you find on like a you know old VHS or like. Uh, you know, somebody on the internet is like, whoa, you've never seen such and such from like 1984. You got to check that out. That's really cool. So I looked at it that way. And it's just maybe like cult films are just kind of those films that are out there that you might not necessarily know exist and people like really get into them. Yeah, I think that we've been really lucky uh, in the past five, ten years, even a little bit more than that, but particularly in the past five years or so, where a lot of their like physical media does have a sort of death rattle uh, at times, but there are uh, companies, we talk about this in the documentary, there are companies out there that are really fostering and, and uh, cultivating these lost titles and these movies that people don't really remember or that they kind of were lost in time. Maybe they didn't get a prop DVD release, but you know now they're getting a Blu-ray release or um, or they've been around, but they're coming back into the mainstream with like extra features or a better, you know, a 4K scan. Um, things like that are being these movies are that might that could have been lost to time if we didn't have companies that gave a shit about them um, are kind of coming back into the fold. And you know, the cool thing about is that there are places where we can talk about these and find out about these movies and you know even see them ourselves. You know. So I think that for me, a cult movie has always sort of been the ones that were hard to find or those ones that like sort of were in my peripheral. Like maybe there was a, a some weird six degrees of Kevin Bacon thing going on, you yeah. know, where they were like uh, a hop, skip and a jump away. But they were always they were never clearly in the mainstream, though, as Bill was saying, I mean, you take into account things like Star Wars or you think about like Ghostbusters or Big Lebowski. And oh, yeah. you really that's when the line gets that's when the line gets a little blurred. You know, 
Right. It's almost like uh, like a, a, an artist that's like an indie artist, and then they start selling out stadiums. And you're like, yeah. I mean, there's you... there's parallel to that for sure. So like, what did you? What, what did you like take away from this at, like at once you'd finished it like what did you learn I mean beyond filmmaking skills specifically but more in your understanding of uh, cult films and, and the way people view them I think like the biggest thing for for me was just uh, I, I don't know I think there was because the biggest thing the we talk about technology as a big part of our documentary. We didn't just want to be like a, a history of cult cinema documentary because there's a few of those out there already and we didn't want to just beat a dead horse. We wanted to really focus on how technology sort of changes the definition or alters the definition of cult cinema. Um, and the biggest thing for me was finding out that, uh, you know, torrenting isn't necessarily the big killer of cult cinema anymore you know like torrenting uh oftentimes was helpful for people trying to discover these films now that we have all those physical releases that i was talking about people are more apt to maybe check out a flick um through those methods or or particularly like netflix or amazon prime streaming you know like people are more apt to sign up for a subscription and find those movies that way as they would be to just steal them and i think like torrenting is bad was so hammered in our heads um, Mm -hmm. for a while, especially from independent filmmakers, um, that it was interesting to see that, that, that at least from the people that we talked to, that seems to be kind of going by the wayside. I mean, I think people will still utilize those channels if they need to find something that they really don't know how to get to, or they might be in a different region where there's not, you know, a video store or whatever, like a boutique video store or a boutique theater that would be showing those movies. But ultimately, people are willing to spend like money on a subscription service as opposed to figuring out how to torrent things now. That was a big surprise for me. Hmm. I think my, my, I think my biggest takeaway really comes from the fact that the more things change, the more they stay the same. I know that kind of it kind of sounds cheesy to say, but like, you know, we talk about VHS and like all of the all, all the older dudes in the in the movie are like, oh, well, you know, it was never as good as it was when you could go into a video store and you see the box art, and you yeah. know, now we got everything at the click of a mouse, and it's like, yeah, technology makes things easier. That's that's the that's the whole point of it, you know? Yeah. Um, but like, it's the same thing now, where it's like you talk about you talk about you know tape trading and stuff, and you guys are probably a little young to actually remember when like you would get like tape trading, but like. It, you would basically like trade tapes with people and they would send you a tape with like these three movies on and then you'd send them a tape with like these three movies on and that's how you got a collection of movie, mm-hmm. which in hindsight is no different than file sharing. It's just at an obviously much, much smaller level. Right. So like it's the same thing and then people talk about, oh, well, you don't have the connection that you used to have and it's like, you're crazy. You're more connected with people to talk about movies now than anyone's ever been before. So it's like, yeah, you would hang out with your buddies and you would shoot the shit about whatever weird Japanese import film you came across. But isn't that the same as like whatever, like, like, you know, whatever group you belong to on Facebook when you're, when the group is dedicated to exploitation and grindhouse cinema? It's the same thing. It's just, it's not as personal, which is what I think a lot of people kind of, kind of miss. I, I mean, I kind of miss that, but I completely understand. I don't come from that mindset of like, oh, well, everything that is going on now is bad. It was better the way it used to be. 
Right. That's like, I don't actually think it is because you can discover so many movies now through, excuse me, through file sharing and, through, you know, downloading and like sending links and stuff. Like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of movies, well, actually we're talking thousands, millions of titles, of stuff that's never going to get a release. Some of my favorite movies are like films that haven't been released since VHS in like 1982. So that's nobody, I mean, it's not all going to come out. So the fact that you have torrenting file sharing, I think is a positive in that light that you can still access those movies that you right. might never be able to otherwise. Yeah, there's a story I heard about Maybe I'm remembering this wrong, but how Monty Python's Flying Circus, the like, whoever the TV station was that owned all the masters to that and uh, had had all the original tapes, like, deleted them accidentally somehow. And for, there was a moment in time, this is before the internet, that it, it seemed like just Monty Python's Flying Circus would be gone forever. But there was one guy in, like, Sweden or something, and he had recorded every single episode of it on VHS. And because of that, they were able to uh, get get the whole archives back. Yeah, bless them. Like there, there's there's so many. There's a couple of stories like that of people finding, and maybe not like full episodes or full masters or whatever, but people finding uh, components or you know extras or whatever of stuff that's just been on a, v, on a VHS tape in a basement somewhere. You know, it's like it's crazy how many of those things actually existed. Right. Well, the movie um, Miami Connection is a really good example of that in the cult film world. A couple podcasts discovered a VHS version of that movie, a VHS rip, and covered it. And then people were like, whoa, that sounds freaking ridiculous. So they then went out and found it. And then another podcast would cover it. And, another, and before you knew it, like all these people were talking about this movie, Miami Connection, which is this just super cheesy, like pseudo kung fu action movie from like the mid 80s. Then nobody talked about it. And then. Alamo Drafthouse found a, like a 35 millimeter print of it and they put out a Blu-ray collector's edition of it. Mm -hmm. And wow. nobody would have thought about that movie if people on, you know, torrent sites and the internet hadn't rediscovered it. Yeah, there's the, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of like The Room was probably a movie like that too, where if it just was in a video store, it, it might have not taken off in the same way as yeah. a YouTube The, room, the room that was never available other than a DVD that Tommy Wiseau put, Wiseau put out himself. It wasn't on any streaming sites. There was no legitimate streaming. There was no Blu-ray until recently, obviously, since you know the disaster artist came out and the popularity of it changed all that. But like for a long time, there was no, you could only get it from like Tommy Wiseau. Was he had to like buy, buy it through his website or whatever wow. it was. That's crazy. So, um, so another question, guys. Like, you interviewed, as documentaries uh, are, you interviewed a bunch of people for this. Who, who are some of those memorable, memorable interviews to you? Uh, the, the, big, the biggest ones for, for us were actually, uh, I mean, there, everybody was really cool. And I think that um, the biggest ones for us actually bookended our shooting of the documentary. So the first person that we talked to was Ted Raimi. Um, it was just, yeah, it's just like a cult film icon, actually. It's just, but he's also just off the wall and crazy, and he really set the tone for uh, what the documentary was going to be. Um, and then we ended our our filming with Joe Bob Briggs, who is probably the most popular horror host besides Elvira, uh, particularly for the films that we talk about, uh, cult films, you know, older kung fu, like some other erotica, you know, all sorts of like the whole gamut. Like, of course, he had like specified a lot of horror movies, but he also had a lot of other flicks that he talked about on his shows. Um, so it was really cool to be talking to those two because those were also 
those were also people that I don't think that we expected to get. I mean, this is this is very new for both of us. You know, I only did one doc, and this is Bill's first film, so this is all really brand new. And we just kind of dove headfirst, and to be able to bookend the the doc with those two people was really cool. Yeah, it was a lot of work getting getting names and you get denied by people and. It's like, oh, you know, if you could just get, like, I had, like, a couple people like, oh, you should try to get Quentin Tarantino. It's like, well, yeah, no shit, we should try to get Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> <laughs> like, you don't get, you don't even get past his, like, his, like, not even his, his, like, uh, representative. You don't even get past his representative, like, uh, like, secretary. Intern, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, but, yeah, like Kyle said, I agree with him, absolutely. The two bookending of the two, you know, you know, quote, unquote, biggest names for the film with Raimi and Joe Bob was amazing, but we, we talked to some so many really rad people. We got an amazing interview out of Chris Gore, who used to he's used oh, to yeah. host Attack of the Show, I and he's Chris been in. Gore. That's awesome. Yeah, Chris Gore, he's the man, and he's a wealth of knowledge. Yeah, uh, hilarious guy too, like really funny. Um, but my favorite interview is a gentleman that most people probably don't know, don't know his name. Um, but he's he's done some amazing stuff as our as our good buddy uh, Steve Scarlatta, who was the producer of one of the one of the producers of Jodorowsky's Dune, and he wrote Beyond the Gates. Um, and his interview is like is my favorite thing about like the entire process of making the movie because he's just such a nice, genuine dude who just has this like deep rooted love of terrible movies, and he's just hilarious in how like matter of fact he is with the way he tells everything, and he drops more f bombs. Than, like everybody else put together. Yeah, this is yeah, our he's, just this, he's from he's from Long Island, right? Yeah, he's from Long Island. That's cool. Um, what was I gonna say? Um, so like y- you guys, um, this is your second film, Kyle, and your first film, Bill. Like, what did you find yeah. challenging about I actually making the movie? Oh, what was that? What was that, Mike? I'm sorry. What did you find that. challenging about actually making the movie that maybe you didn't expect? Well, for me, the whole thing was challenging. I had no idea what to expect. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'd never been on a set before. I'd never, um, I'd never, I'd never, I didn't do like any short films or anything. Like I went to Kyle. I was like, I have this idea for a documentary, and Kyle was kind of like, "Well, what do you think?" In like 30 minutes, I'm like, "No." I'm like, "I want." I'm like, I want 80 to 90 minutes. I want to do a full-length documentary on this because I don't think we could possibly cover what we want to cover or anything shorter than that. Um, so, yeah, the whole thing to me was just, like, new. So, like, the first day of filming, we're in there, and Kyle's got the lights, and, you know, he's, like, figuring out which lens he's going to use for the camera, and we're setting all this stuff up, and, like, he's like, oh, you know, we're going to do sight lines. I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> I'm like, but my podcast has been around for a while and I have done a shit ton of interviews. So you sit me down in front of everyone and I will do these interviews and I will make that work. So that was kind of like how everything began. Um, cause I have no problem with doing interviews. I, I actually really like it. So we kind of taught each other things as we went. And there was a couple different times where we had to do shoots where we were kind of each completely on our own. Cause this movie's like complete. I mean, when you talk about, you know, DIY indie filmmaking, this film is absolutely like 100% 10 of 10 are all of those things. Mm-hmm. So um, working together was such a was such a natural thing for the two of us for whatever reason. Like Kyle said, we clicked when we first met, and we clicked this like first day on the set together. Clicked, and it just um, it that challenging stuff was done after like that first day of filming. So yeah, I think the most challenging part for me was pretending that I knew what I was doing for Bill. <laughs> um, no, I'm just kidding. 
Um, no, I, I mean, this was, uh, I think that it was challenging for me because even though it was my second doc, it was my first documentary that wasn't like through the school. So like my first documentary was also doubled as my senior thesis. So I had like, uh, which I always describe college as, is I, I describe it as bowling with the bumpers on. So like I had a lot of like cushion to be able to mm. do that first documentary. And That's I think really that the challenging part was not anything necessarily technical or um, logistical. It was really me trying to get out of my own head and just be like, yeah, we're, we're doing this. Like I had been living in LA for about two, two and a half years uh, before Bill uh, approached me about it. And uh, the difficult thing about living in LA is that you really are a little fish in a big pond and you're also being told by all the, all the bigger fish or maybe the littler fish that you can't even be in that pond. Um, so like it was, it was like the morale was really the hard thing to just get over. But the cool thing about Bill, uh, and the blessing about it is that he doesn't come from that background. Bill is just like, Hey, we're doing it. Like, let's do this. Like we're like, let's just get this stuff out there. And it was really like it's changed my whole outlook to be able to like go into other projects now and just be like, yeah, we're fucking doing it. And like we, we're just going to do it ourselves. Like it was really DIY. Like Bill's really good about talking to people and letting them know about the doc. Like I'm pretty subdued, but now I've learned a lot from that. So it's like the hardest part was just getting out of my own way to be able to do this stuff. And I'm glad that we were able to do it together because I don't think that I would have been able to do it unless it was some, with somebody like Bill, you know, or just with Bill Fullerton himself, like the man, the legend. I don't know about that. How we did it? No, but it's true. I mean, but it's true. It's like living, being out in LA is really difficult, you know. And so for you to come in from like a different background and just be like, yeah, we're doing this, man. We did it. Yeah, I come from a mindset too of I don't fucking care. I'm like, it, well, it's. I mean, but it's kind of like just like in like. Like Kyle says, like that's kind of you got to be like that. Like you kind of have to push your push your weight around a little bit and be like, if we're gonna do this, we're gonna do it. Mm-hmm. I remember um, right before we started filming, like right, I was flying out. I was gonna be flying out the next day to to have a stay with Kyle for three or four days, and he was telling me when I got there, he was like, oh man, he's like, you don't even understand. I'm stressing out, wicked bad. And I'm like, why are you stressing out? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> why am I stressing out? I'm like, we're gonna do it. And then that first night after we did our first interview with Ted Ramey, we looked at the footage and the footage we had with obviously no color correction or anything like that. But like the footage, like it looked fucking like a real documentary. So I was like, all right, we're good. What are we doing tomorrow? Yeah. Yeah. I really just got the ball rolling from there, you know? Hell yeah. So it sounds like you guys, you know, learned a little bit from each other. You pulled yourself up, pulled each other up in, in, you know, tough times and, and you made it work and now you're, you're, better filmmakers for it um so that's really good to hear Uh, what i want to ask now is uh you know obviously you guys are the like the foremost experts on cult films so i was wondering if you could recommend one film to me and my listeners that they might not and and, you know like we all know big lebowski like that's actually my favorite movie of all time so like i mean and we could we could do a whole hour on that i'm sure like i really love that movie but um, i I, I I hate that movie. You don't? You hate, oh. I'm not even joking. Big Lebowski is one of those films that I don't understand. I don't understand why people like it so much. How many times have you seen it? Uh, see, okay, let's go to this. 
hey, I hated that fucking movie. Oh, well, how many times did you watch it? Well, I watched it once, because, and I didn't watch it again because I didn't fucking like it the first okay. time I watched it. All right, <laughs> so that's that's fair logic to have. It makes sense. I see where you're coming from. But no, Big Lebowski I mean, I mean, is one of, it's one of those movies that breaks that mold where it's like the first time you watch it, you're trying to understand what's going on, what's happening. It's actually like almost more complex of a story than like it needs to be for what makes it great. And the second time you watch it, you see what's happening, and you just can enjoy the characters and events and uh, the way they play off each other. Like, right. in, in, I, I haven't yet to experience a movie that I enjoy so much more every time I watch it. I mean, I have a lot of movies that I've watched dozens of times, but this is one where it's like, right. I, I, I feel like there's more to get from it each time. So I really would recommend watching it the I second can... time. Yeah, I can totally understand that, man. And, like, everything you're saying, I have other movies that all of those things I agree with. I just – The Big Lebowski, for some reason, is not a film that I can – and I've actually watched it. I've watched it twice. Okay. But, like, I, I just – it just doesn't appeal to me. It's like Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is another one that people just love, and I'm like, I don't fucking get it. Yeah, that's a movie that's, like it, – it's – it's kind of cool and like a, a fun adventure, but at the same time, it's massively overrated because uh, I find the plots like it's very, very incoherent unless you have read the book and you really know what's happening. And even then, it's like, what was the point of all that? And the book does a much right. better job of like explaining the philosophy behind uh, like the, the writing itself. But the movie is kind of just all this weird stuff happening, and then it's like, pfft, and you're like, what did what did I just? I don't even. Yeah, it's still fun. Yeah. To watch. I've never made it through the whole. I've never made it through the whole flick for that reason. Yeah, well, I would definitely recommend the book. The book is phenomenal. Um, mm -hmm. The movie, the movie makes so much more sense after reading the book. You're like, oh, oh, that's okay. I've that's, actually heard that. I've heard that. But um, yeah. So, but but going back to what I was saying, can you recommend one movie that my listeners probably have never heard of, but is is greatly enjoyable? How how deep how deep do you want to go? Because I can get like I can get like yeah, real fucking obscure. Um, maybe like not the most obscure, but like you know a few levels below the surface of what's mainstream. Okay, all right. Um, I will go with an action flick from the seventies. If uh, you have ever been kind of inclined to enjoy uh. The black exploitation affair. Most people start off with stuff like Shaft or like uh, like Superfly, but there's this amazing movie called Three the Hard Way uh, that came out in the mid '70s, and it has Jim Brown, Fred Williamson, and Jim Kelly in oh, it. Go Cuse, Jim Brown. Jim Brown. Woo. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad you said that, Kyle. Thank you. <laughs> I got you. There you go. I would never have connected that. And <laughs> it's destiny. But it's fucking. It's it's amazing. Uh, it. It's three of like the best leads from that time period, um, and it's just got like balls to the wall action, and there's just like all this crazy stuff going on. Jim Kelly, who it was, I think one of the most underrated probably guys from that time period, an amazing martial artist, um, and just has like amazing scenes where he's beating up cops, and like um, it's got everything you can want in a fun action movie. Plus, it's full of all that '70s stereotype stuff too. So like. It's got that inherent, like, quotation movies sometimes miss out on. A lot of those, people look at them as kind of like fun movies, but, like, 
there's actually quite a dark side to them. Something like Willie Dynamite, like seems like this fun loving like movie about this like pimp guy, but there's a real dark side to it. Through the Hard Way is just like balls out action the whole time, and it's just it's just awesome. Nice, Kyle. Do you have uh, one that comes to mind? Uh, so I am going to recommend uh, another action movie, but not because it's good like Through the Hard Way. Um, I'm going to recommend one that's a little uh, off called Never Too Young to Die. Oh, I um, love it. Dude, Never Too Young to Die is amazing. So I actually first saw this movie and I got, so maybe it's because I got to see this movie on like a 35 millimeter print on the big screen, but I actually, uh, I gifted a, a VHS rip of this movie to a lot of people in college. Um, Mike, I'll have to get you one. Thank um, you. It is an action movie, uh, a, basically a ripoff of like a Bond type, you know, a late '80s Bond type movie. Yes, yeah, uh, like starring John Stamos. Wow. Um, okay. Stamos. Yes. I'm in. Yeah. John Stamos as. Wait, uh, Mike. Wait. This, wait. Do you hear the rest of the cast? Okay. Uh, <laughs> so it's John Stamos as Stargrove, who is who is the son of a of a, like a government spy, basically who somehow has to pick up where his father left off in whatever the hell this scheme is. We don't uh, quite know what's going on. Um, And so he is has to go up against this villain. Okay, no, so we do know what's going on. Somebody's trying to poison the water system, I believe, in Los Angeles. Mm. And it is this... uh, Bill, do you remember the name of the... Not the actor, but the, the name of the character... Oh, Velvet, uh, shit, what was Velvet it? Von Ragnar. Yeah, okay. yeah, Velvet Von Ragnar. So, Velvet Von Ragnar, who is a transsexual gang leader played by Gene Simmons of Kiss. Whoa. Um, yes. Whoa. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> this is, a great this is all, oh, it, it's amazing. And then there's a, some sort of love interest who, who was played by Vanity, who was a supermodel of that era. He was um, one of uh, Prince's discoveries. Oh, uh, okay, okay. So, and I don't quite know where the love interest comes into play. I believe that it was his dad's, like, girlfriend or something, like, side chick, who somehow is now in love with Stargrove, um, John Stamos, and they have to try to take down Gene Simmons from poisoning the water supply. And it is it is crazy. The f- opening sequence is who we were supposed to believe is John Stamos doing like a gymnastics competition um, before he finds out that his dad like is in just trouble and he has to like pick up where he left off. But he doesn't know his dad's a spy. But then all these like hoodlums come in and try to like kill him. But he knows kung fu all of a sudden. It's very it is it is very of its time, and it is so. Fun. So I believe Shout Factory put out a Blu-ray of it recently. So it is, you can find it out there, um, and it is a blast. It is so fun to watch with a group. Couple things you missed though, Kyle. Thank you. Right Not on. only is Velvet Von Ragnar like uh, Gene Simmons, he he's actually a hermaphrodite in the film. Yes, yes, he uh, is. Also, you have George Lazenby, who was who played Bond in one film and had a pretty pretty well-known career in the early 70s playing Stamos' dad. And then also you have Robert Englund in it too. Yes, you do have a brief appearance by Robert Englund, um, which is post-Friday, I'm sorry, not Friday the 13th, oh Jesus. Uh, No, it's post-Friday the 
Yeah. Um, and, and it's it's very it's very odd. Um, the whole thing's amazing. But it's such a blast. Have so you ever I, watched, not to self-serve for a second, have you ever watched the OTC video commentary we did for it? I do have it. I have it. I've watched the first half hour of it because then I had to leave. But I, I had it downloaded, and I, I was watching it with my VHS bootleg. Um, but I want to get the Blu-ray and, like, do, like, a full proper viewing. With well, here's the thing. It is currently available on Amazon Prime to stream. Oh, wow. okay. That's, Even better. That's the that's the needle dropper there. Everyone yeah. wins. Oh man. So those those are our recommendations. <laughs> All right. Uh, I can make recommendations for days. So yeah. You yeah. Can. That, that maybe there's a sequel uh, for this podcast down the line. But um, that. All right. Well, I'll be checking both those out. You know, uh, and the, another thing I want to ask you guys about. So you, horror is not uh, my most well versed genre of movies, but I have heard people saying. And, and and I'm really just telling you what I've heard more than like this is truly my feeling that horror is making a comeback in recent years with and I've heard the term smart horror and people uh, cite films like Get Out and A Quiet Place that are doing really well at the box office and it also was was really big uh, last year made a lot of money uh, do you is this, is this true do you think horror is making a comeback did it never go anywhere and like, how is it different than horror from the the eighties and uh, you know whenever its hey, true heyday was? Allow me to take to take this first, if you don't mind, Kyle. Do it. No, have at it, man. I'm excited. Yo, horror never never went away. It went away to the point of it's not making 150 million dollars at the box office every week, but it runs in cycles. Horror always runs in cycles. You look back, you take five years, and all the Saw movies or whatever it was, we're doing, you know. $200 million at the box office. And it is great that there's some, you know, quote unquote, smarter horror movies that are getting wider releases and making more money. But those films like that have always been like that. They're just a little bit under the, you know, under the radar. A few years ago when like the French were making all these amazing, like bloody gory horror movies that have like these brains to them that are far ahead of a lot of the stuff that's coming out now. I think people just like that aren't, tuned into it and maybe maybe you could actually even speak to this mike because you said yourself you're not necessarily tuned into it mm-hmm. doesn't they don't find out about these movies because they're not being for the better you know being shoved down your throat it's like get out is a good example of a film that was able to kind of build its niche and then excel based on its what it was but like a lot of people talk about a quiet place from earlier this year is kind of one of those movies and i just don't see i just don't see it like i don't understand what makes that movie you know so much better than you know um you know beyond the gates or like i mean obviously that's probably not a good comparison in terms of like they're not at all alike other than they're both considered horror movies but like there's films like are always there there's always amazing independent horror movies and i know like at the end of the year when i sit down to do like a top 10 list of the year like half of it ends up being independent horror movies usually so I don't think that it ever really went away. I think people just weren't necessarily looking for it from the mainstream. Right. I think I think people find it when they need to. Um, you know, I don't think that these films are ever not made. You know, I, I think that there's always because people have stories to tell, and I think that a lot of smart horror, mo- like smart movies in general, will use horror as a device to tell that story. I mean, they could they could have told Get Out as a comedy. You know, like that would just be who guess who's coming to dinner. You know what I mean? Like it would have just been right. Like they could tell that movie as a comedy, but there's horror elements of a comedy a, in there. Yeah, horror horror as a device um, is is really important, and I think that people 
find like yeah people find it when they need to and then you know i think there are uh distribution companies or production companies that then see that and capitalize on it and the cool thing that we're seeing now is that those companies like a24 and like draft house films and like uh any of the other you know particular ifc midnight they are finding a voice with those movies they're finding an audience with those movies so it's and you know i am blumhouse even though you know they have uh contracts with like universal and stuff those are still movies made on a budget and made in a particular way so it's even though those guys are making millions and millions of dollars it's inspiring other uh, you know this generation of filmmakers to go out and make something cheap and be smart about it you know and because you can you can make millions of dollars back on your flick if you only spend a hundred thousand dollars on it you know and even Netflix is doing the same thing. It's offering a platform for these things to be seen. So it's like those movies haven't certain. They certainly haven't gone away. But the more and more people demand them and want to see stories told in that way, the and the fact that we have so many more outlets now, those flicks are being seen and talked about and uh, appreciated for what they are. Yeah, I think one of the other issues too is that so many amazing like either low budget or really specifically foreign horror films that have come out in the last 10 years that are just like these amazing smart films that are just as good if not better than those films that have really excelled the last few years like you take a look back in so many films like um uh take for a sec like uh let the right one in uh wreck uh, martyrs inside all these awesome foreign horror movies that are like amazing horror movies are released you know at film festivals and stuff and people rave about them and then a universal or a sony sweeps in buys the rights to the movie doesn't release the original version of it and then they what then what do they do they go and they make a big budget remake of it which sucks all the soul and the feeling out of what the original one was and then it bombs and then nobody cares about the original one mm-hmm. right yeah, so like, I don't know if Old Boy counts as that, but it does absolutely. Old Boy is one of the best, you know, like action genre flicks of the last, you know, twenty years. And then that shit Spike Lee version comes out, and anyone that sees that isn't gonna go back and watch the original. What a weird choice of a director to remake that too. Absolutely, like, very odd. <laughs> really not the guy I would have thought. <laughs> um, no, really good answers, guys. You, uh, you're clearly like you think about horror movies a lot. Like you, you had you had a lot of insight there. Um, so, you know, just, uh, I have to ask you too, like, what do you want to main event WrestleMania this year? Well, <laughs> I need to ask that. What, what do you, what do you personally want to see within, within some degree of reasonability? I mean, I, I don't want to hear like Kenny Omega versus Ricochet or something like, <laughs> um, I want Finn Balor versus Brock Lesnar. Mm. Okay. I've thought about that before. But how how do you book it in a way that's believable to, to your average fan? Overcoming adversity. And he, bring, and he brings out the demon? Brings out the demon and that's how he, you know, it's like you're never good enough. You're too small. You're too, you know, you're not big enough. And, like, then you, you have that, like, well, every guy has it in him. And what he has in him is that demon character. So he uses that. Um, I don't think Brock's going to be around for WrestleMania, but there's talk that he's going to try to work UFC and WWE, but we're probably going to get like Roman Reigns versus Seth Rollins or something. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I really want to see Finn in the main event picture. I, I really want to see Kevin Owens in the main event picture, but I don't know. And maybe this Money in the Bank 
um, stipulation somehow drives him into that picture mm-hmm. in some way. Oh, uh, I would not be shocked if you see him walk out of SummerSlam as the champion. I, I would love that, and I'd love to see him somehow hold it until um, WrestleMania. And then, I, I mean, I could, I could definitely see some sort of Finn versus KO if they really, if they do it right. Mm, that would be a great match. I, but they, they have to do it right, <laughs> you know? Which right. we know That's, that won't that. happen, so. Yeah, it's really difficult because, but I, I just, I think, KO has so much going in the heel like department, and his feud with Strowman is not doing him any favors. He needs to get back to that like actually fight anyone mentality, and be able to just like go head first with the Universal Championship. And I think he could easily defend it against the Demon. You know? Yeah, you know, I I love Kevin Owens. He's like one of my favorite wrestlers on the roster for sure. Dude, but he's he's, awesome. he's so funny. Like he gets all these like little he's so good like improvising lines and just reacting to situations and having just funny quips but everything but at the same time he's like also a kick-ass wrestler like he's a kind of guy like you remember i don't know if you were following him in the indies but you know he was his first character was like a killer you know like people would chant kill steam kill oh yeah he was nasty in ring of honor and and at some point he came he became this like uh i don't want to say like lovable character but he's lost a seriousness to him. So if you want to yeah. push him as like the face of the company and a champion, how do you balance like showing off his charisma in that way, but also making him like a believable ass kicking machine? I think you. I think you have him actually beat Strowman like clean, full, like full on, like clean. I think you have him somehow. I mean, like maybe not clean. Like maybe there's a couple like dastardly things, but like make those dastardly things like actual heel moves and not, you know, detriments, I guess. Right. And have him beat Strowman clean. And then you're like, oh my, like, have him be the dude who beats the monster among men. Right. You know? Look at, I mean, Kevin Owens is a heel. Like, his most effective work that he's done since he came to the WWE system was, number one, when he showed the first, when, when he first showed up in NXT and he fucking powerbombed Sami Zayn on the friggin' ring yes. apron. But two minutes after he won the friggin' championship. That Dude. was super effective and set him up for this nasty heel, which led to that friggin' ladder match in Brooklyn with him and Finn, which is why I think the two of them could make a really good main event, too. You're right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the other thing was when he friggin' jumped Jericho at the end of the Festival of Friendship. Oh, my God. He's, like, fun-loving Kevin, and then he turns it on and is just brutal. Dude, That the Festival of Friendship should have got an Emmy nomination. That was so well done. <laughs> the best, legitimately the best segment the WWE has done in like probably the last like five or six years it was amazing yeah that was just so well like the whole build up to it you know you have months of build there was also the the fake out like where they there was like a month before earlier where they they get in each other's face and it seemed like they were gonna you know uh break up and then they just were no, like, they, they blame and they blame roman reigns so you almost yeah. felt like they could do that again so it leaves that air of down your mind and mm. all the props and the like actual heartbreak and emotions like he says, I forget what Kevin Owens says to him at some point, where he says something like, "You were never my friend." And you're, yeah, you, you see, the I look, need, like I needed you for something, and now I don't, or something like that. Yeah, it's just so cold and heartless, and the whole crowd goes along with it too, and they're all yeah. ooing and on, like everyone's bought into it, like before kayfabe was dead. It's, who do you, you know, have, who do you have, Mike? Um, you know, I really, I want to see Samoa Joe get a bigger push. I want to see. Mm. Yeah, him in there somehow, and I guess he's fighting AJ Styles uh, this weekend. 
And that, yeah, I mean, maybe he'll win there, but it's like, he's the one guy that, like, I believe when he's, I mean, I know his personality to some degree as just a human being, and he seems like a chill dude. But, like, when he's on screen and he looks, wants to put that look on his face, like, he's going to kill you, like, he looks like he's going to fucking kill you. And yeah, he does. There's And he's, like, one, just one of the best wrestlers in the company, and he's super good on the mic. So I want to see him get, like a, like, a year with the title. So maybe maybe even just against AJ Styles again. Uh, I yeah. think they're going to put on a, an awesome match. Even though Nakamura AJ Styles kind of disappointed when they wrestled. You just go back and watch the Wrestle Kingdom match from uh, like three or four years ago. Oh, yeah, that's a good, that's a great match. Um, I mean, my in my unrealistic uh, main event would be like Kenny Omega versus AJ Styles versus Ricochet uh, against like the Velveteen Dream or something like that. Oh hell, I didn't. You know what the, the, the ultimate would be? You had a fatal four way for the championship, and you had Finn Balor, and you had Samoa Joe, and you had Kevin Owens, and you had Daniel Bryan. Oh yeah, actually, like, yeah, that would be like every indie wrestling fan's like wet dream. Like everyone would just like drop dead afterwards. Dude, yeah. I mean, they're burning it now, but I thought Miz Daniel Bryan could have main evented WrestleMania. I I thought so too, and I'm really kind of bummed that it's only at SummerSlam and they're well, just like just doing it. I don't think, I don't think this is gonna be it. I think this is just the beginning of it. But, but the issue is that Daniel Bryan supposedly hasn't signed a new contract yet, so. But imagine if Daniel Bryan shows up in New Japan, and then like. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, he could main event. Or something. Could main event Wrestle Kingdom too. That'd be. Oh, there's too many good matches waiting for him there against like Naito or Takahashi when he gets better. That'd be good. If you put if you put Kenny Omega against Daniel Bryan in a ring, like, oh. the magic that would happen. Although I don't know if Daniel Bryan would take the bumps now like he used to. Yeah, that's uh, that's questionable. I think he's he might be willing to. I don't know if For it'll happen. Like that, he might, yeah. But um, you guys like this has been a lot of fun. I have legitimately enjoyed talking to you too. I hope I see you uh, when you guys are in New York because I think yeah, we have man. a lot of fun hanging out. Absolutely. Um, one more time, just let everybody know what you got going on, and uh, when and where they can hopefully catch a glimpse of this uh, documentary you have. Yeah, for sure. So we are premiering uh, August 26th at 11 a.m., bright and early, Sunday brunch uh, at Horror Hound Weekend Film Festival in Indianapolis. Um, we do have some other screenings coming up that haven't been announced yet, but we are going to be in Massachusetts at the beginning of October um, and hopefully some other places uh, after that. You know, it's been a rolling um deadlines for film festivals and we've been getting notifications back um about where we're at and where we're not so uh you can find us on facebook at survival of the film freaks uh you can find us on twitter and instagram at film freaks movie uh and you'll be the first to know about anything uh if you follow us there sweet and uh and, and bill you're, you have a podcast yourself what's what's that about oh uh it's called outside the cinema it's available on uh all of your normal podcast places. It's uh, cult films almost exclusively. Occasionally we'll break uh, form where we usually try to do stuff that's at least 10 years or old, like 10 years back, so that we're not covering a lot of the same stuff that's uh, being covered by everybody else. But um, it's me and my co-host, Chris. We've been doing it for a long time. I guess we're okay at it by now. If not, I mean, 
then you then you're gonna keep going. Either either way. Yeah. It's, it's, it's never gonna it. stop. Never awesome. gonna stop. Awesome. Well, thanks again for uh, uh, being being on the podcast, and uh, we'll be that I'll be checking out your movie you. when I can see with my own eyes. Yeah, man. Thanks again for having us. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Anytime. Uh, all right. All right. Let's go watch Raw. Yeah. yeah. Visualize what you can't see